Kidney Week 2011 podcast episode captures all the excitement of ASN's annual meeting. President-elect Ron Falk talks with Alfred Chung, Kanar Javeri, Suzanne Watnick, and Catalin Sustak. After reviewing exciting and surprising study results, innovations in communicating medical advances, and how to influence health policy, the group ponders how advances presented at ASN in 2011 may change kidney medicine in 2021. Welcome to the Saturday version of the 2011 Kidney Week podcast. Welcome to beautiful Philadelphia, where today we heard from Mayor Nutter, who welcomed the American Society of Nephrology to this lovely city. With me today are four participants in the meeting. I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Suzanne Watnick. I'm from the Oregon Health and Science University, and I'm a member of the ASN Public Policy Board. My name is uh, Alfred Chung. I am a clinical nephrologist and a clinical researcher from University of Utah, and I have been a loyal member of the ASN for 30 years. I'm Kenar Javeri. I'm a nephrologist uh, clinical at uh, Hofstra North Shore LIJ School of Medicine, and I'm a blogger at North Front Power. Hello, my name is Kathleen Schustek. I am a nephrologist at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York, and usually I spend my time in the lab and I do basic research and I see some patients as well. And in addition, tomorrow you are getting, Caitlin, the Young Investigator Award from the American Society of Nephrology. Congratulations. Thank you, Ron. That is a wonderful honor and you most clearly deserve it. So let's start with you, Caitlin, if we could. There was, during the uh, late-breaking clinical trials today, a very interesting study on uh, the outcome of the diabetes, uh, the DCCT trial. Tell us what you learned there. Today, it was uh, in the late-breaking abstract session, data was presented from the follow-up of the DCCT trial. The DCCT trial was started in the 1980s in patients with type 1 diabetes. Patients with intense and conventional glucose control were compared. And these patients are extremely loyal, and now they have been followed, I think, for 25 years since the trial closed. And the clinical parameters of the patients after the study was closed after the initial eight years are fairly similar. Since we learned intense glucose control is very important uh, in type 1 diabetes, then everybody has a fairly well-controlled glucose and blood pressure levels. And today, data was presented on the follow-up renal parameters from patients who were initially assigned to conventional or intense glucose therapy. The data was really astonishing for me, and I think it's going to change the way we think about diabetic nephropathy development. Patients who who were initially included in the intense glucose control group had much lower level of kidney complications, decreased GFR even 20-plus years after closing the trial. What was interesting is when the DCCT trial stopped initially, there really was no obvious benefit of glycemic control during the initial phase of the trial. But now, almost a quarter of a century later, we learned that in fact that 
metabolic control or metabolic memory, maybe, 25 years later, has a real impact on the development of kidney disease. Indeed, I think this is a major finding of the DCCT trial as far as microvascular renal complications concerned. Uh, I think originally there has been data that uh, it has a metabolic memory effect most likely plays a role in cardiovascular complications, but there has been no data. I think this is the first real piece of evidence that metabolic memory exists for renal complications development as well. So now what would that tell a practicing nephrologist about glucose control in 2011? The trial clearly demonstrated that Early glucose control is very, very important in patients with type 1 diabetes, and it's critical, and it has a lifelong consequence. That's, I think, more towards the pediatrics role there. I think a lot of these people get diagnosed, especially as a child, so it's the role of the pediatrician, really, to get this intensive, and the pediatric endocrinologist to play a big role rather than the nephrologist in getting that tight control back. By the time we see them, it's really in their early 20s. Alfred, what excited you today? I was very glad that I went to the plenary session. In addition to watching the awards being given out to very deserving individuals, to listen to Dr. Cynthia Canyon talk about the aging gene. Today's lecture was superb. It, it was a very good mix of some basic science data with an overall global view of what the investigator was doing and even a little bit of clinical implication. I was really impressed and learned a lot about it. So what she showed us was that there were worms that could crawl along quickly even though they were older and worms uh, that had uh, the wild type worms uh, when they were 13 days old were old, decrepit, uh, non-mobile worms, and there are clear genetic differences between the young, athletic, older worm and the uh, old, typical wild-type worm. It seems as though there are only one or two genes, at least from her, in her hands, that were important, although there are multiple pathways that she shows uh, to us today that seem to be involved. It was a fascinating discussion. No question. I, uh, I do feel a bit badly for those poor worms. They only get to live about 13 days. But on the other hand, they serve mankind very well by prov providing a very good model for Dr. Kenyon to explore those uh, important pathways. And the most important message that she gave us was that aging is not just your body falling apart and nothing you can do about it. It's not that simple. It is really upregulation or downregulation of certain genes that are there to protect the organism, and when those genes are not behaving well, then not only do you get aging, but you also get the aging-related systemic organ complication. That is a very powerful message. And what's more, if you eat uh, sugar, as these worms seem to enjoy some sugar, uh, your chances of aging were much greater than if you ate a lot of calories but seemed to avoid Sugar. So the carbohydrate story seems to play a very big role there as well. I think what she said was that sugar definitely seems to make those worms live shorter. Right. And if you avoid sugar, then you may be a little bit more liberal in eating other calories. 
And I have to say that from my personal standpoint, I am not very happy about what she's telling us. <laughs> I, we have already been told that we cannot eat salt. And now we have told that we cannot eat sugar either. <laughs> what else do I get to eat that we enjoy life? And what's more from yesterday's session, we learned that you have to be very careful about the vegetables you eat. Oh my gosh. You develop a hemolytic uremic syndrome. So probably the main message is moderation in all things is a good thing. <laughs> Suzanne, tell us what was exciting to you. Well, I have to say, I was very encouraged about the public policy sessions that I got to attend today. Uh, they really complemented um, our premier policy session, the BLAG lecture, which happened yesterday. And that was given by Mark McClellan, who was previously at the head of the White House policy group under Clinton and now is the head physician at the Brookings Institute. And what he talked about specifically was putting forth a challenge to the nephrology community, really put forth a call to action for all of us, because what he was saying was that in Washington, D.C., the policymakers want to do good. They don't always have the correct tools to come up with the correct rules, the correct incentives, and the correct way to pay for various kinds of medical care, like dialysis therapies. So what he was saying, it's very important for us as a group to come forward with a single voice and tell folks uh, in D.C. and inform them what is important for our patients with regards to quality, to let them know if it matters whether we have a certain value of hemoglobin or whether we care more about what patient satisfaction is like. And so I think hearing that message from somebody outside of nephrology but deeply involved with healthcare payment and delivery was really um, a heartwarming message. And I think the other thing that was very nice to see were all the trainees that attended the policy sessions. I think in the past, uh, nephrologists weren't quite as engaged as they may uh, be now with uh, some of the rules that are coming down that are really changing healthcare payment reform. But um, it was nice to see the turnout, uh, in particular from all of the trainees, uh, not just the fellows, but also the residents who were interested in how we're going to start paying for dialysis in the future and come to a model where we will be able to both hopefully provide quality as well as excellent care at a reasonable cost, the concept of value. So those American Society of Nephrology Hill visits, when we lobby Congress, has some useful value if we have a singular message? It really does. It has a nice ring to it, not just if it comes from us, but if it comes from people throughout the nephrology community. So it's so important for all the work that we do at ASN and to collaborate with others in our community, but also to get folks from a grassroots perspective, all the nephrologists out in the community to come to write their senators and to write their congresspeople, to inform them uh, what's important to them and how it really makes a difference for their voices to be heard. So Suzanne, what is the best mechanism for the average citizen, and it's in particular in our case, the ASN members, to contact the congressman to make sure that her or his voice would actually be um, heard and that emails would actually be read? Is there a mechanism that we can do that? There is, actually. 
So lucky for us, we have a really nice website. And if you go to the ASN website, you can click on the public policy tab. And on that page, not only do we have mechanisms to contact the ASN, for example, Rachel Schaefer and Grant Olin, uh, who work in the, in the policy group, um, but there's also a lot of information about the current healthcare policy reform and care delivery um, acts that are coming down right now. And so I would just suggest to go to that page, write us, and then also when you get messages from the ASN Public Policy Board, take a quick look at them and contact your congresspeople. Kinar, what was exciting to you? Well, to close up the loop, I think the CPC is always the highlight to me as a young faculty. And um, it was excellent again, as usual. Can you please tell us who gave the CPC, who was the moderator, and who was the discussant? The moderator was Dr. Ajay Singh, and the discussant was uh, Rosalind Mann. So uh, the case was kind of focused on what we are seeing lately in the transplant world, which is chronic allograft loss, and what are the causes of that? And it astonishingly, the diagnosis came out to be adenovirus nephropathy in this particular case. And it's a sort of an underdiagnosed entity. Uh, I've looked at the literature on adenovirus nephropathy in bone marrow transplant literature, and it's pretty common. And actually, adenovirus is a risk factor for CKD post bone marrow transplant. So uh, looking at the kidney transplant is probably something to think about. And maybe it's not as as uncommon as we think. So it goes um, along with the other viral problems, BK, nephropathy, CMV, CMV, and others? Well, CMV we don't see as much anymore as they, they used to, uh, according to pathologists in the discussion. But uh, BK predominates, and less than 1% still is adenovirus nephropathy. And it's very similar. It's a, it's a tubular interstitial nephritis, uh, angry looking, and uh, with renal dysfunction, uh, non-nephrotic proteinuria, hematuria. And this patient particularly presented with hematuria and with uh, dysmorphic looking red cells. So during in this era where we have wonderful immunosuppressive drugs, uh, rejection is much less, less common. common. But now all the nasty bugs are rearing their head and are causing problems. Correct. And I think uh, there was a study that presented part of the discussion was that the, the acute rejections that happened earlier on and acute changes that happened earlier on, like DGF, are still are not really panning out to be risk factors anymore for chronic uh, allograft failure. So there might be other things that we need to look for. You are one of nephrology's main bloggers. How do you decide what you're going to blog? Are you going to blog about the CPC? Yes. I think um, it kind of has a blogger's bias a little bit because I, I blog about what I hear and what I see. and But I do blog about what I hear from you guys as well. So it, it is a combination of who you hang out with and where you, what you see at the ASN. But I try to cover different areas of nephrology, from transplant to glomerular disease to some dialysis uh, and electrolyte disorders. But my interests are in glomerular disease and transplant, so most of my what I'm going to blog is about that. Uh, but there is always something that uh, is going to be biased from the blogger's standpoint, always. How does a blogger interact with the ASN? How does a blogger figure out how to deal with the tremendous number of offerings from posters to communications to plenary sessions. How do you wend your way through the, through the maze? Well, I, it all depends, I guess, on what level of uh, training you are and where you fit in terms of learning. 
I, I focus a lot on what will benefit the fellows in, in back home or who haven't come to the to the nephrology meetings. And I try to focus on something new that's that's going to be pivotal in, in the nephrology news. And those are the things I geared towards and and practical things that might help junior fellows to uh, in the in the training purposes. And if members want to give you feedback, is there a way that they can do that by providing posts? Correct. Uh, there is actually a comment section on my blog. You can comment on it, and or you can send me direct emails on what you would want to see more on the on the blogs that might be useful for other members. And um, I think there's so many other blogs out there too. The Renal Fellow Network, the ASN has a blog now. So there are a lot of ways to get your voice heard and to have a sort of an online journal club. And I think that's what we should encourage happening. What was your favorite basic science presentation that you saw? I have an interest in podocytes and podocyte biology. So I have a little bias of looking at these particular posters. As we know, a podocyte and mutation in the podocyte actin cytoskeletal proteins, we have discovered a number of them, and they appear to be one of the leading cause of uh, congenital nephrotic syndrome and focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. So this theme uh, came up in the poster sessions uh, and in oral presentations today again. There are new ways of imaging these podocytes where we can put fluorescent labels into the cells and, and see the cells and their motion, motility, and shape in vivo. A couple of posters were presented about that. Uh, there are new molecular targets that interfere with the podocyte actin cytoskeleton and modulate how they behave and some of them could be also targeted with different therapeutics. Uh, I think the Holtzman group had a poster about another target called CRIC, which is another modulator of the actin cytoskeleton. I think this seems to be a kind of unified team in the field of podocyte biology lately. I have seen a number of studies in which there have been images of the movement of molecules or cells. It's amazing how cells are constantly in motion. The pictures we see by typical pathology or even by scanning electron microscopy makes it seem as though everything is static. But when you do in vivo microscopy, all our cells are in constant motion. As a matter of fact, all of our molecules seem like they're busily trying to find friends and partners. The utility of High-definition imaging is changing our perception of a lot of biology. Absolutely. I think, as we say, a picture is worth a thousand words, I think. I think this is absolutely correct. And I think the way in vivo the glomerulus, the kidney looks, it's probably different. It's a lot more dynamic than what we see on sections and images. There are lots of new technologies in microscopy, and there are new microscopes that are, have been developed, actually, that can do amazing images now. Besides um, novel molecular targets, have the field advanced to the stage that we can actually use some protocytes-derived molecules in the urine that help us in the management of kidney disease at this point, or are we not quite there yet? 
there are number of groups that are working on uh, podocytes, urinary biomarkers, and I think there are papers, uh, publications, and there were posters out there showing the utility of analyzing the urine, the urinary podocytes, podocyte markers. The data is very, very interesting. It appears to fit to the perception of the crucial role of podocytes in glomerular disease development. Definitely, as with human studies, as you know, larger number uh, of patients would need to be enrolled and repeating it at multiple places are critical elements here, but these are very promising initial studies. For those of us who take care of dialysis patients, what, what's new and exciting that we can take home to alter the care of our patients? So I went to a session that has two separate talks. One talk it was on hemodiafiltration from Turkey and also another uh, study from another part of uh, Europe that described that um, even though hemodiafiltration overall did not have a positive effects on the uh, patient's mortality, however, higher dose, in other words, uh, higher ultrafiltration volume uh, could be beneficial, but that is only secondary analysis that we need to take that with a grain of salt. And the second talk of that session uh, was also very interesting. They were described the um, secondary outcome of the NIH-sponsored uh, frequent hemodialysis network trial. In essence, what we learned there is that more frequent dialysis, for example, daily dialysis, not only does it uh, able to uh, prevents the left ventricular mass to grow and also have better quality of life, but uh, may actually also have an effect on lessening depression. And the patient self-reported um, physical uh, welfare. Um, and that those are very interesting findings. Again, because they are secondary findings, uh, we need to take that with a little bit of grain of salt. But Alfred, if that study is correct, and let's say it gets that component of it is repeated, mm -hmm. cardiovascular mortality is the leading cause of death in dialysis patients. Left ventricular function and mass is a critical variable. Wouldn't that be a driving force to encourage more dialysis? Absolutely. I think it's an intriguing finding both from the clinical practical standpoint and perhaps from the pathophysiological uh, standpoint. We also learned from this ASN, for example, is that this FGF23 molecule could be directly affecting left ventricular hypertrophy. Right? So it, the, the effect may not be simply just by removing fluid and uh, lowering blood pressure, but could also be more successful uh, control of phosphorus that leads to a amelioration of the effects of FGF23 on left ventricular mass. On the same note, you might have been at the late baking abstract session when a, a trial was presented when they used um, 
you know, vitamin D receptor modification, which actually had no effect of normalizing uh, the left ventricular function. And one of the things that the authors actually hypothesized that maybe they actually increased FGF23 levels and which could actually influence and cause increased LVH despite they modified the vitamin D system. We need very effective FGF23 blockers. It's exciting to think that there's something we can do to improve some of the outcomes of our dialysis patients. Another one of the exciting things that we saw here at ASN was the implantable artificial kidney uh, prototype that's coming into some trials right now. Um, so I think that that is another exciting place that we may uh, see some advances in the future. However, I think that's still very much on the preliminary uh, drawing board. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, Alfred. Actually, I have not been uh, able to uh, learn more about that uh, system, so I'll be uh, very interested to learn more about it. May I just return to the point about the care of the cardiovascular disease and dialysis patient. I find it very exciting as not only the prospect of the future therapy, but it, I think it's to some extent changed the paradigm of what we should be targeting and not just all about fluids and blood pressure, which I think is extremely important. But there are other aspects of the dialysis patients that could actually be quite unique to dialysis patients and advanced CKD patients that may be, not be shared by the general population, such that we have to learn about this new concept and uh, this potential shift in paradigm. If you think about what we've learned over the last three days, and in fact, almost six days because of the in-depth courses that began this wonderful kidney week, we get to learn about space tomorrow, and we get to hear from our young investigator. Put yourself now in the mode of what care is going to be like in 10 years. So it's 2021. I can feel it now. 2021, what did you learn at this meeting today that you think might alter your care uh, in 10 years? I think that there will be some excellent biomarkers that might be available to us in 2021, hopefully in practical use. A simple example might be preeclampsia uh, and diagnosing a preeclampsia through soluble FLED, you know, FLED1 and the WEGF story. And I think that is one, one of the groundbreaking uh, changes that might actually, nephrology has seen in the last you know, five to six years that might make it to to clinical practice soon and early diagnosis of preeclampsia, uh, which will definitely change our practice of you know when to deliver, when to give immunosuppressions, which affects the outcome of the child and the mom. Well, in addition to biomarkers, I think soon we should have genetic markers for many diseases. I am looking forward to new genetic and epigenetic markers where we can predict the development of diabetic kidney disease. Of course, based on Today's session, we have to emphasize tight glucose control early on in these patients. I think also that the stem cell field is very exciting and it's coming up with new and new ideas how we could use stem cells 
to treat uh, acute and chronic injury, of course, one would envision that one day we will grow even kidneys in culture, but that may be a little bit too far. But I think the stem cells, the mesenchymal stem cell therapy could be very interesting. I think that there will be a tendency toward more intense dialysis. The results in trials we have now so far, even though the results have not been definitive, it points to the direction that more intense dialysis is better. And that is physiologically, it does make sense to have a more intense dialysis than this is the traditional three times a week, four hours each time compared to how much clearance you might get out of the normal kidneys. So I do not expect there will be a lot of major trial to have more definitive outcome, but I think the direction is going this that way to have more intense dialysis. I don't know about everyone here, but I think in 10 years from now, more, more there'll be more PD patients. Uh, I think the way the policies are going and I think the data is coming out, I think uh, the, there'll be more US PD patients and I think there, there will not only be a greater number of peritoneal dialysis patients, but I think we'll also see an expansion of the home hemodialysis field. And I think that has a lot of implications with regards to payment because, again, if we can hold down our costs in certain ways, we can provide more quality to those patients who are really in need. So, Suzanne, wave your policy wand. What policy do you want to change to allow all these wonderful ideas to come to fruition? Well, I think it's not just a single policy. I think it's a, just a, a broader perspective about the importance of kidney disease in this country. So as we know, there is something of an epidemic of kidney disease in this country that's becoming more well-recognized. And in order to take care of the patients who are getting kidney disease from diabetes, from obesity, from hypertension, and from various other causes, we're going to need a multi-pronged approach. And that includes not only better education on the part of our society for the constituency, for trainees, but also for better patient education to allow them to take hold of their health. It also will require increased funds, so we need to find a way to continue to fund research for comparative effectiveness for basic science and with those kinds of different ways to approach this concern i think we can really help our community of patients with kidney disease i think dr bonventry had put it nicely that i think in the last 20 years we have too much focused on dialysis and forgotten the sort of the other aspects of nephrology like acid base and uh, glomerular diseases and lupus other specialties have taken over the care of those patients and i think 10 years from now we should get them back. And I think that that's a really important point. And again, I think that is why it's so important for us to consolidate as a community and to really take advantage of groups like the American Society of Nephrology to come together and to advocate. The last question I want to ask each one of you is what was the most fun thing you did while you were here during Kidney Week 2011? We had a bloggers night. We all the bloggers of nephrology met and we chatted and discussed uh, interesting things of nephrology and just got to know each other because we only know by by uh, by online and never seen each other. So you actually got to see each other face yep, to face. At the Renal Fellow Network, the Precious Body Fluid, and a couple of us from Nephron Power, we all met 
and we just had a good time. And may I ask, did you have computers with you in no. the room? No. <laughs> you were just completely divorced from all electronic devices? Correct, except I think Joel Tove, I'm sure he's will not mind if I say his name, he did have a camera and took pictures of all of us and probably put it on the website. So my division chief and I took all of our trainees out for dinner. We had a table of 11 and we went through all of the various dishes that we ate <laughs> and all the various things that we drank and thought about how that affected kidney function in general. And it was a good time. <laughs> and uh, from our uh, an awardee today, you thought a lot about urine at each step of the way. <laughs> Every step for sure. <laughs> and I hope, Suzanne, your meal was relatively devoid of sugar and salt, just to be healthy. We made sure. <laughs> well, I have been coming to ASN. Um, I hate to reveal my age. I've been coming to ASN for 30 years. And um, this time is no exception to listen to novel ideas and deliberate collaboration, which is very important to me and my colleagues. But seeing friends, for some of them for the last 30 years. Sadly, many of them has uh, their hair turning white and, or losing their hair for that matter. Um, it's uh, also a very fun thing for me. I, I really enjoy seeing the friends I've known for a long time. And for you? Well, I think this is a very precious ASN for me. I'm receiving the 2011 Young Investigator Award from the American Society of Nephrology and the AHA Renal Council. So cool and so well deserved. Thank you. Can you give us a 15 second preview? No? No, you'll have to do that tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for spending this time with us and enjoying Kidney Week 2011. This is Ron Falk with the American Society of Nephrology. Thanks so much. And the president-elect. For a few hours. <laughs>